Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we seek to become like Jesus and live for others. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We're so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays for one service at 10 a.m. Also, if you're looking for a place to celebrate Christmas, we welcome you to join us on December 24th for one of our Christmas Eve services at 11, 1, and 3 p.m. You can find more details about the day at waterstonechurch.org. We look forward to connecting with you. Isn't that a beautiful video? Oh, am I on? Nope. Oh, there it is. Sorry. Thought it was user error, but it wasn't, so we're good. Um, thanks, Polly, for clearing that up. Oh, man, so we are starting our, our Advent series, looking at the face of the God over the next four weeks, and uh, I'm so excited to dive into that series uh, with you today. Um, before we get going today, I'd just like to take a moment uh, and pray with all of you. Uh, I am coming off of, I've just been fighting a cold or flu for the last week, and I, I thought I was getting better, and then it kind of came back with a vengeance yesterday. Um, and I can hear from even the room that there are many of you who are in the same boat, um, hear the, the coughs and the um, congestion. So let me just pray for us this morning. I'm going to ask uh, God to show up um, with us as we begin this series. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, God, as we come in uh, to this Advent season, um, God, so many of us are, are coming off of Thanksgiving week, uh, time with family. Uh, many of us are maybe still feeling like we're in a food coma um, and just uh, tired. Um, and God, as we come into this Advent season, uh, there's so much excitement, anticipation, and things we look forward to. Uh, but that we know for many of us, uh, Advent can also be um, a mixed bag. Um, God, as we come together today uh, to look at this theme in Scripture of the face of God, um, this longing that we all have deep within us to experience your presence. Uh, God, I just ask that this morning your, your presence would rest in this space, uh, that whether people are joining us online or in this room, uh, that, God, we would uh, just encounter uh, your face this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, so I, I feel like this time of year can kind of separate us into two groups. Um, and it really comes down to this. There, there are those of us uh, in this space who maybe start decorating for Christmas um, right after Halloween, right? Anyone there, you just like, Halloween's over, you just turn, okay, a few of you. I notice that you don't quite raise your hands because I feel like that crowd gets judged a little bit, right? Like, like some of us are like, I'm not quite sure. All right, we got a few hands raised. I've, I've always been in the camp that you wait until after Thanksgiving. Uh, anyone in that? Okay, yeah, purists, yep, traditionalists, awesome. Um, my daughter, though, is starting to change my perception about that a little because she, she, after Halloween, she was like, we should start listening to Christmas music. And I was like, whoa, in this house, like, you need to know. Um, but she was like, Daddy, if it makes us happy, why would we wait? And I was like, oh, man, okay. <sighs> you know, I'm a softie. It's true. You know, if it brings joy, why prolong the waiting period. Uh, so we, wherever you're at, whichever camp you fall into, I, I can safely assume that most of us at this point in time have most of our Christmas stuff up or are at least planning to sometime today. Is that true? Like we're kind of all on the same page. We're, we're all there. So we don't have to judge anyone. We're all firmly in Christmas season, right? Um, we started off with watching a, a Christmas movie.
movie with my daughter on Saturday night and started playing favorite Christmas songs, which for me are like, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Like, we're there. It's okay, wherever we're at. Um, we're fully in that season that comes with it, this, this sentiment of happy holidays. I mean, it's written on our Starbucks cups. It comes on our Target gift cards. Like, happy holidays is all around us. Uh, and yet, if we're honest, while, while the holidays can be an incredibly happy time for many of us, sometimes the holidays are anything but happy. The, the reason for that, I think, is, is Christmas and this season has a way of dragging up whatever is in our lives. You know what I mean by that? That, that there's something about the holidays that it, it drags up good memories from the past, but also painful memories from the past. They're the days that invite us to rest in the company of loved ones, or for some of us, they can feel like they're forcing us to pass long, slow days, thinking of the loved ones we don't have, or the loved ones we wish we could trade out for a better model, right? They cause us to remember the loved ones who are no longer here with us. Christmas has a way of dragging up memories that we want to live over and over and over again, but it also has a way of dragging up those memories that we wish we could never relive, but are forced to every December. And that's why I'm so grateful that the church has the season of Advent. Because the whole point of Advent, the whole purpose of this season of waiting and longing is that before we get straight to the hot chocolate and the ice skating and Santa Claus, is the church calendar reminds us, Advent teaches us that we don't have to put on a happy face, that we don't have to hide our troubles. Advent is actually a tool designed to make us wait and acknowledge the brokenness in this world. When so much of the world is trying to say happy holidays, Advent lets us acknowledge that it's okay to not be okay, that life isn't always peppermint mochas and Black Friday deals. Anybody had a peppermint mocha yet? Right, a few? Yeah, they're so good. <laughs> Fleming Rutledge writes, Advent begins in the dark. And when she writes that, she's talking about the, the idea of suffering and sin and the apparent hiddenness of God, that feeling that God is not always with us, that, that so often we cannot sense him or his presence. The, the reason Advent begins in the dark is because we live in the dark and the brokenness of this world. And the reason we light candles during Advent, and the reason that we actually chose not to light a candle this morning, is because Advent serves as this reminder that we live in the darkness, and because we live in the darkness, we need a light to break through. That, that something within us is longing for something beyond us. That's at the heart of Advent. This idea that Christmas, with all its hype and all its anticipation, never quite lives up to our expectations because it was not supposed to. Christmas and Advent are supposed to point us to the ultimate reality of this longing we have within us. 
Now, different people from different places, they talk about this longing within us for something beyond us in, in different ways. Some people from different faiths or different traditions may talk about it in a way of, we, we all long for the, the sense of the divine, or we want to experience the transcendent, or, or we want to come in touch with something beyond ourselves. But it's all getting at the same language. This idea that within us there is something that longs for something beyond us. And the way scripture talks about this longing within us, this desire for something beyond us, is that we all long to see the face of God. That there's something within us, the, the deepest longings, the deepest desires within our heart are longing to experience and encounter God and see him face to face. And we're left in this season of longing because we never quite get what we're looking for. There's always a sense of emptiness and lostness and, and this desire for something more. This longing to see God face to face. That's the desire. And today, what I want to do over the next few minutes with you is, is walk through the story of Scripture, looking at different places where this theme, this thread of longing to see the face of God comes up. Because what we see is that actually this is a story that begins all the way in Genesis and leads us all the way to Revelation, the very end of our story, this longing to experience God's presence, to, to have a life with him and to be able to see him face to face. And so today I want to walk through these, these five crucial scenes that remark on this theme of longing to see the face of God. And so we're going to begin where the story of Scripture always begins, in the beginning, in Genesis 1, where God creates the heavens and the earth. But what's important about how God creates the heavens and the earth in this first scene is that the heavens and earth are not created in the biblical story from violence or from suffering or from pain or from war. They're created from goodness. And from love. And, and against all other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, the biblical story is that God spoke in his goodness the created world into existence. And in this created world, this heaven on earth, the created people lived in communion and relationship with God. There was no death, no grief, no sadness, and no longing. And the description of the garden, this first scene that we encounter is, is that we actually lived with God face to face in the garden. That, that we were in such close and intimate communion with God that we literally experienced life with him. As if we were experiencing life like you and I are right now. Seeing one another face to face. Seeing and experiencing the face of God, his full presence, the full weight of who God is was constantly available to our first parents in the Garden of Eden, and they experienced God relationship with him. But, but out of all that bliss and that perfect goodness, this face-to-face -face existence with God was shattered when the evil one tempted humanity with a lie. 
And that lie was this, that, that there was something within them that was longing for something beyond them. But the, the lie was that what we are longing for, what we are looking for is not contained within the person and character and experience of God, but within ourselves. That, that if we would just turn our gaze inward away from God, then we would find what it is that we're looking for and longing for. We would become like God. And so our first parents fell away from this desire to become like God, not to experience life with God. And at that moment, this world that had no death, no grief, no sadness, no longing, all of those things entered into the world. All of those things came into our existence. And sin and death and darkness entered the world for the first time. And in Genesis 3, we're told this. Then the man and his wife, after the fall, after sin, death, and everything that's wrong with the world has entered the world, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? You see, having chosen to become like God and trying to find what they were looking for and longing for within themselves, Adam and Eve no longer look forward to the time where they could communion with God and experience his presence face to face. Instead, they hid from God. And here they're pictured like little children in fearful shame hiding from their father. Have you ever hidden in shame? Maybe as a kid, you you broke something that you knew you weren't supposed to touch or you snuck some sort of treat that you weren't supposed to have and and you felt the, the shame of that and so you felt like you had to hide what had happened from your parents. I remember for me uh, growing up, I, I, I was kind of a daredevil, which really means that I just had like an extra dose of dumb um, in me, like a few extra doses. And I would just do all of these like incredibly dumb things, like jumping off of houses onto trampolines, like, or, or building ramps at the bottom of steep hills that were like made out of two by fours and plywood and, and not at all strong enough to support us as we were coming down these hills on these bikes. And, and I would just do these things that, that didn't make a lot of sense. And so I don't know if it was because my prefrontal cortex wasn't fully developed or, or what was going on, um, but I would just make all of these dumb daredevil decisions. But one that, that really sticks with me is when I was in, in middle school or high school, I, I can't quite remember, probably too many bumps to the head growing up, um, but I was playing basketball in our front yard, in our driveway, um, and in our street, and my mom was backing out to go to the grocery store, and I decided for some reason, and to this day, I still do not know why, that I would just jump on the back of our minivan and hang on to the roof rack and just let her drive with me on the outside of her vehicle. I have no idea why I just decided to do this, but I did. And I get up there and my mom starts picking up speed and I'm thinking, wow, this was a really bad choice. It came to me a little bit later, but I didn't know how to get out of this situation. And so I thought, man, uh, I guess I'll just jump off. And I didn't think to like bang on the roof or tell her, you know, like, hey, I'm up here, like shout. I was just like, I'll just jump off. And I don't know if you know how physics works, but when a vehicle is moving 
15 miles an hour and you stop moving with that vehicle, you are still moving that fast. And I was not at all prepared for that at all. And so I fell on my face. I'm lying in the street as my mom is driving away and I'm like all scraped up and I'm like so embarrassed. Like why in the world did I do this dumb thing? And it was so bad. Like, like I had scrapes and so they knew what had happened, but, but I was so ashamed of what had happened. I didn't tell them that I, I, after that accident, I couldn't like fully extend my arm anymore. Um, I had stress fractured my elbow and didn't know it and didn't want them to know it because I was so embarrassed by what had happened. We've all had, maybe not experiences like that, um, because you all are smarter than I am, but we've all had experiences where we have done something or maybe something has happened to us. And it causes so much shame within us. Those questions, those fears, those doubts about why did I do that? Why am I so dumb? Why do I keep doing this thing again and again and again? And those moments, those cycles of shame are the places that cause us to hide from one another and to hide from God. And sometimes they don't just happen in silly ways like jumping off the back of a moving vehicle. Sometimes our shame runs much deeper than that. It's the reason why we keep coming back to the same sin over and over and over again. It's shame that drives us into the spaces where we feel like, man, I just cannot show who I truly am to my friends or to my spouse, but especially to God. They're the things within us that we think we have to hide from others. I think so much of our lives are characterized by this sense of shame, this sense that we have to hide from one another. I think when it gets down to it, sometimes it's why we keep our schedules so busy so we don't have to confront the reality of our shame. It's why we lose ourselves in another Netflix show. It's why we lose ourselves in another scrolling for hours. It's why we lose ourselves in another porn binge. It's why we nurse the six-pack during the game all night, and it's why we're so angry, so given to procrastination and perfectionism and all the other self-sabotaging behaviors we have within ourselves. It's because from the moment we left the garden, we have been hiding from God and hiding from ourselves and hiding from one another. That there's something within us that's telling us that things are not the way they are supposed to be. And despite having that knowledge, we can't seem to find our way out of it. And so Adam and Eve hide from God. And God comes to them and he says, where are you? And while God came looking for us at the fall in the garden, we have been searching for God ever since we left the garden. The fall left us playing a game of hide-and-seek, looking for something to fulfill us that we're not quite sure what it is that we're looking for. And so we just keep searching because something within us is longing for something beyond us. And ever since that moment we've been hiding from God, we've been longing to be found and longing to see God's face again. Scene one the origins of all of our longing, all of our desires, all of the ways that that the world and the world within us is not quite what it's supposed to be. Scene two, 
God takes the people of Israel to a mountainside. They, they've lived for 400 years in slavery, and they've, they've been longing for freedom, longing for someone to come and rescue them, and God shows up in all of his loving might and power and compassion and goodness. He hears their cries, frees them from oppression, and takes them to a mountainside in the wilderness. And when God brings them to this mountain, Mount Sinai, his whole plan is to to reveal to them who he is and how they can be in relationship with him once again. In fact, he invites them, the, the entire people, to come up onto the side of the mountain to experience God's presence. And they're so frightened, so terrified by his glory and awesomeness that they refuse to go into his presence. And they just say, Moses, you go up for us. And while Moses is on the side of the mountain encountering God's presence and talking with him about all of the ways that God is inviting them to be in relationship with him, The the people fall into the same trap that we fell into in the garden. They begin looking elsewhere. They're so desperate to see God's face. They're so longing to, to have some temporal experience of God that they create for themselves an image for God. They create for themselves an image that they can see, that they can touch, that they can feel. And they begin to worship that in the place of God. It's the same pattern that we all fall into. We want to see the face of God so desperately, and it's so difficult for us that that we can't see him, that we begin looking in this world to fulfill that satisfaction and that longing and that desire we have within us. And so God sees this people that he's just rescued, that he's just given his heart to reject him and choose to have nothing to do with him. To, to choose to worship something else. God has literally brought them to the mountain and says, I want to reveal myself to you. I want to show you my character. And they choose to fulfill that satisfaction and that longing in something else. And so God, seeing this, recognizing this, he's angry and Moses has to intercede for the people and he prays to God and he says, God, uh, please forgive us. We, we want to experience you. We want to be your people. We want to commit to being your representatives on earth. And, and God is compassionate and forgives the people. But then he says this. He says, you can go into the land. I will give you your freedom. I will give you the promised land. I will give you everything your heart has been desiring, everything that you have been longing for, but I'm staying here. I'm not going to go with you. You can have everything that your heart desires, but you will not have my presence which you can almost hear the, the, the testing or, or the question in God's voice. If you got everything that your heart longed for, but you did not experience life with God, would that be enough for you? Would you get, if you got the job, the house, the wife, the family, everything that your heart desired, but you had God's absence within your life, would you be content and have everything that you wanted? And Moses rejects that deal, and he says, God, if we, if we don't have you, everything else means nothing. If we don't have your presence, that, that's what our heart is truly longing for. We, we just want to be with you and experience you, even if we don't get the rest of those things. 
And so God comes to an agreement with Moses and says, I will go with you into the land. I I will go with you. I will guard you. I will protect you. I will lead you into the promised land and my presence will go with you. And then Moses and God have this, this amazing interaction in Exodus 33. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. God has made this agreement. He's made this commitment. And Moses says, I want it all. I want to experience the full weight of your presence and who you are. I want to experience everything about who you are. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Now, isn't it interesting that Moses asks to see God's glory And God says, the sheer weight of who I am, the the weight of my goodness and holiness and and my glory is so immense that, that the weight of it would literally crush you so you cannot see my face. Moses asked to see God's glory, and God says, you cannot see my face. See, this is a prayer to see God as he is. But, but in these terms that Moses is asking for, that mortal man cannot endure to see God. That the passage says that there is still a problem. While the longing is the same as it was in the garden to experience God and see God, there, there is a problem in our relationship with God where, where we cannot comprehend or experience the full weight of who he is without it absolutely crushing us. See, when sin entered the world, while it changed our relationship with God, it, it did not change our desire for God. We still have the same longing as Moses did, but that longing has been marred by sin. We can't see God anymore. We can't experience his presence in the same way when we, we once did. We, we can't see his full glory the way Adam and Eve were able to in the garden. But something within us still longs for God's presence in our lives. The way the Apostle Paul talks about this longing is that, that we are longing to see God. And it's as if right now we, we see through a foggy window. That the image of who God is, we can, we can catch glimpses of it. We can experience a taste of his goodness and his glory. But there's something that has come between us that has separated our ability to experience the full weight of who he is. And we feel that in ways small and large. For, for some of us, there are some seasons in our life we can't experience the full weight of who God is. We can't experience the glory of God, the goodness of God. We can't feel his presence because of the sin within us. The, the ways that we have chosen to live in rebellion against God, the ways that we have chosen to go our own way instead of living according to God's will and God's reign. And when we do that, it creates this distance, this gap where we cannot experience God's presence. But it's not just the sin within us that causes us to to see this distorted image of who God is, that, that, that doesn't allow us to see the full reality of who he is. It's also the sin around us. 
the, the brokenness of the world, when we see the devastation and the corruption and the symptoms of sin and evil in our world, I mean, those are the moments where we ask, God, where are you? Are you in this at all? Are you with me in this season? God, when I see the, the devastation of war and famine and disease, and when I see the, the brokenness in homes, when I see the broken relationships in my own life, where are you? It's the sin and brokenness that's around us that sometimes causes us to not be able to see God. Moses' vision of God, his understanding of who God is, has been devastated in this moment. He cannot experience God's face, even though that's what he is longing for. And I wonder where in your life right now you're longing to experience and see God's presence, but the, the, the situation and the circumstances around your life are causing you to find it difficult to see his face. Is it another round of resumes that you have to send out? Or another round of chemo? Another negative on another pregnancy test. Another underwhelming first date. Another specialist. Another gray winter day. Another moment in the job that seems to not be what you had hoped it would be. See, there's so many things within our lives that we still have the same desire, the same longing within us for something beyond us. But sin and brokenness and just the dreariness of this world sometimes gets in the way and makes it difficult for us to see God's face. But we also learn something incredibly important about God in the scene at the mountain. That despite the fact that the people have rejected him and attempted to create another image to worship in his place, God is still merciful and compassionate and gracious. And God says, I will not give up on my people. That there's something within the character of God. And, and he says that, that though you will not be able to see my face, I will show you the character of who I am because I will not leave you. And what we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament is this same continued pattern of, of God revealing himself, showing up to the people in, in power and wonder and light and love, and them choosing to worship other things, choosing to live in rebellion to God, choosing to go against his will and his reign in their lives, rejecting the one who has given them everything. And it's this repeated pattern over and over and over again. And it even comes to this place where hundreds of years later, the, the people are living in exile, living under another oppressive force. And God says, if you would only seek my face, if you would only seek my face, then you would, you would find an end to all of your longing, all of your searching, all of the ways that you have been looking for other things to satisfy and fulfill. You can hear the pleading in God's voice. This repeated, continual pattern of people rejecting God and him just pleading, just seek my face. And then we come to the story of Jesus. 
And I love the way that John opens his gospel because he picks up on this theme in this thread. And look if you can see some of the, the parallels to some of the scenes that we've already looked at. The, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, God's presence among us. And we have seen his glory. Moses could not see his glory, but we have seen his glory. The one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known to us. We have seen his glory. You see, Moses longed to see the glory of God the same way we long to see the glory of God. And, and while he caught a glimpse of God's glory, and while so many places, so many stories, we catch a glimpse and a taste of God's glory, what John opens his gospel with is that we have seen the full glory of who God is in the person of Jesus. From Matthew to Revelation, the New Testament writings are united in the conviction that man, the man Jesus of Nazareth, has shown to us and revealed to us the face of God. If we want to know what God looks like, then we simply need to look at the face of Jesus. The man who lived among sinners, who healed sick and cast out evil powers, who, who suffered and dies and raised to life again. This man, Jesus, shows us the face of God. No one can see the glory of God and live. That's what Moses said. But now tax collectors and sex workers and lepers can, can look at the face of God and not be crushed, but actually find life. The fog has been lifted in the person of Jesus, and we see that God has a face. No one can see the face of God and live. That's what Moses said. In a way, he was right. Because in Jesus, in that face, with the crooked nose and the bags under his eyes and the beads of sweat on his forehead, in that face that Moses said would kill you, people encountered it and were completely undone. They fell to their knees and surrendered to him. They gave their life to him because it was only proper response to seeing God face to face. That's the glory of God. Something within us longs for something beyond us. And the story of Scripture is something beyond us has now come among us in Jesus. The glory of God that Moses could not see has come into the brokenness of this world so that we might be able to see God face to face again. Pete Gregg, he calls it dirty glory. And I really like that because he says that when you look at Jesus, you see the glory of God get down in the dirt. As a toddler, Jesus played in the dirt and got dirt all over his face. As a young man beginning his ministry, Jesus rubbed dirt in a blind man's eyes so that he could see. 
Jesus got down on one knee and scribbled in the dirt so that an adulterous woman might know that she is not condemned but forgiven. Dirty glory. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus got down on his knees again and wiped the dirt from between his disciples' toes. Dirty glory. Glory has a face and has come among us. See, the story of Advent, the story of our waiting is that glory became one of us so that we might become like him. The word became flesh. God got dirty so that you and I might become glory and experience his presence once again. Glory took on a face so that you and I might see God face once again. But Paul, you might say, why why don't I feel God's presence now? If God became among us, if God's glory was revealed fully in Jesus, then why do I still feel this tension? Why do I still have this longing? Why do I still sit in this space and in my circumstances, in my life where I wonder, God, where are you? If Jesus is the face of God, why can't I see him in my circumstances, in my life, in my moments? And the reality is this, while Jesus came and revealed the full weight of God's glory, Paul says that that while we see his glory now in part, it's only one day that we will see his glory again face to face. Look at how he says this in 1 Corinthians. Now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then one day we shall see him face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul says that that we are still stuck in this in-between space, this space where we still at times feel the need to hide from God. But one day we will live in relationship with God where we will be fully known by him, where we will have nothing to hide ever again, that we will see God face to face once again. It's the same way the authors of Scripture finish the story of the Bible. We begin seeing God face to face and experiencing life with him. And and then we experience this longing for something beyond us that, that can't be found in any of our existence. And then in Revelation 22, we're told this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. They're back in the garden and as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. And they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. You see, there's a day coming that we live in the midst of the tension of the now and not yet. But there is a day coming and that waiting will cease. The longing we have within us will be met and found when we once again see God face to face. You see, Advent reminds us of what it is that we're all really longing for, to see and experience God's presence, to one day encounter him face to face. 
And the reality of, the, of Advent and this season is that it also reminds us that God came among us to bring that reality to us. That, that God stepped into the world and experienced the dirt in his glory so that we might one day be with him. Last scene, and it comes from outside of Scripture. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of, of Chad Bird, and he wrote a book called Your God is Too Glorious. And it retells within it one of the, the best sermons that I, I've ever heard that came from a man who is diver dumpsting, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> dumpster diving. There it is. Wow. Dumpster diving. And Chad Bird, he was a, a semi-truck driver. And I always have this kind of affinity with people who, who are semi-truck drivers because my grandpa for his whole life was a truck driver and he drove thousands and thousands of miles. But Chad Bird, in this season of his life, he was a semi-truck driver and he tells a story of, of one winter's day, he pulls up in his semi to a convenience store to get himself a cup of coffee to try to make it through the night of his long drive. And as he pulls up to this convenience store, he sees a woman standing next to a dumpster. And as he gets out of his truck, this woman approaches him and he can see that she's been living a pretty difficult life. Her face is all weathered. She, she's covered in dirt and grime and grease. And as she approaches him, she just simply asks, is there anything you can do to help us? And he notices that there's some commotion, some, some kind of movement going on in the dumpster behind this woman. And so he, he stops and has a conversation with her. And it's her husband who's digging through the trash looking for something for them to eat. And so Chad goes into the convenience store and he, he buys a cup of coffee and he buys two sub sandwiches and brings them out. And by the time he comes out, this man has already climbed out of the dumpster and takes the sandwiches, hands them to his wife, and then extends his hand in gratitude. And this man whose face is weathered and covered in grime and grease extends his hand and Chad says that it's just glowing in gratitude. He's so grateful for this food. Chad takes his hand and shakes it and, and he can feel the dirt and the grease from the dumpster on this man's hand. And this man simply says, thank you so much. Well, we just got into town a few nights ago and we've been staying under that bridge over there and, and we don't really have a lot. But God, he always seems to send someone our way. Jesus has been good to us that way. He always provides. And here in the back of this convenience store, Chad's talking to this person who, who has no bank account to his name, no home over his head, and is literally digging through a trash can to find his next meal. Says, God's been good to us that way. He always seems to show up in the darkness and in the moments where we need him most. And Chad says it's the greatest sermon he's ever heard because it's on the margins that we're reminded of just how far God went, that God himself chose to dive into the dumpster of this earth so that we could experience his glory. This is what Chad says reflecting on that moment. Every time I think of that dumpster sermon uttered by a homeless prophet, I remind myself that wisdom lurks in the outer places. Rich gratitude among the impoverished and the forgotten. Jesus been good to us that way. Yes, he 
has. Thank God for pastors and for church leaders and for best-selling Christian authors and for all those in positions of prominence whom Christ can use to proclaim his good news of salvation for the world. But thank God, too, for the people who have never read a word of Martin Luther or Karl Barth, but whose lives are inked through and through with the theology of the cross. They drive tractors, they flip burgers, they shingle roofs, and yes, they even dig through dumpsters. Each of them embodies the earthiness of theology. The same God born in a barn and laid in a feeding trough as swaddled in the ordinariness of the, our unawesome lives. The same God who had nowhere to lay his head sleeps with us under interstate bridges. The same God who was blackballed by religious highbrows of his day sits and mourns with those of us who have been broken by the church. The same God who died between two crooks hangs out with cons and ex-cons today. The same God who let a prostitute weep on his feet and dry them with her hair embraces and kisses women leaving the sex trade today. He is the God of the cross who is found where the world doesn't seek him and where all too often the church doesn't expect him to be. But there he is. Jesus is there for them, for us, and for all people. You see, God became one of us so that we might become like him. Glory took on flesh, took on dirt, so that we might become glory. Glory took on a face so that we might once again see God face to face. And as we begin this Advent season, there's a song by Phil Wickham called The Face of God. And it's meant to give us space to pause and reflect on the ways that we think of God taking on a face and what that means to us. And as the band plays this song, I would encourage you today, think of the spaces in your life where you are still hiding from the face of God. Where are those spaces in your life where you are still hoping and waiting for God's face to show up with you? Where are you longing in this Advent season for God to reveal himself to you? Where is God in your life right now revealing the face of his glory to you? Please listen to these words and seek the face of God. <laughs>